Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like stigmata, tomatoes, and intolerance. Oh, I think intolerance is an interesting one, Sam. Very interesting. It's quite a serious one, the history of intolerance. Tolerance and intolerance. Or we could do lows, blows, and flows. Slows, and we've already done something on gin... Slows, meadows, or the rhyme almost works, or hose. And with hose, I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more here garden implement or or or, or item <laughs> of clothing than the subject of a big daddy cane wrap. That's a sort of esoteric uh, reference for all the um, all those all those uh, history types of you among um, among our listeners. However, this is to digress as ever, because we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of grandparents is in fact all about World War Two oral history and sociability during lockdown. It's also about 20th century New Zealand, memory and identity, National Grandparents' Day, Elizabeth Freak and the tragic death of a grandson. It's also about monarch's grandfathers, Chinese relatives, as well as my own great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents and the Norman Conquest. Who knew? Or who knew, for example, that the history of leaving home is in fact not just simply about the Viking invasions, which is one of our excellent homeschooling episodes, but it's also about 17th century boys attending school and university, mothers home to letters. It's about going off to war, travelling around the world. It's the opposite of staying at home during lockdown and being under house arrest. So, who knew, Sam? (laughs) <laughs> I love what we do. It's just brilliant. It is nuts, uh, who, isn't who, it? In, indeed. Who did know that? Um, you're all probably wondering who is who is telling you all of this information. My fellow presenter, let me say that if history itself were a doll, this man would build her a house to live in, complete with everything that history needed to be comfortable, happy and not vindictively wanting to corrupt the past, as it would if imprisoned in a miserable dungeon of antiquity, convulsed with shivering loneliness. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daber. Hello. Hello, James. Hello. Uh, And you may well indeed be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping 
Ring Daybell co-pilot this episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a doll-related historian, he'd only be the action man doll of the history world, scaling the heights of history. The Ken doll of the past, charming his way <laughs> through the archives with such plasticized swagger. The Buzz Lightyear of 21st century history making. I could go on, but you've probably already guessed that it is... The famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I was particularly pleased with the Kendall, uh, charming his way through the archives with plasticised swagger. I, I, I was going to pick up on it myself, oh, James. The phrase plasticised swagger is, is not one I've come across No, before. me neither. Possibly <laughs> no one else in the history of the world has come across the phrase plasticised swagger. Anyway, um, thank you very much. I'm delighted with that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are doing the history of dolls, um, suggested by none other than James Daybell. Yes, and so I suppose that's my cue to say, why did I think of it? Um, <laughs> which I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, no. we've sort of we've sort of talked about dolls in some way in the past. We've talked about dolls' houses. We've talked about puppets, which you could think of as dolls. I am the father of two uh, lovely daughters, and the house actually the house was awash with dolls. Uh, there is a there is a, a tub full of dolls, but they don't get used anymore. Um, but I think dolls have a fascinating history. And I was trying to get away from the sort of straight history of the doll, which I'm sure you could trace back to uh, the sort of the Viking age. We t I mentioned the Vikings and I remember in our book on in our book on the Vikings, we had a chapter on toys. And I think we there was some stuff on dolls in that. So you could have a look at the history of dolls, but also you could have a look at dolls in really interesting ways. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking about is actually mannequins. So, um, you know, the, the, the history of mannequins, dolls that were, you know, used for to display fashion. Or we could think about uh, automata. Uh, as well, those sort of dolls that are sort of made to made to move in interesting ways. So all sorts of things. I'm also going to do uh, a potted history of the Barbie doll, uh, read through oh, nice. a sort of in an ideological way, as well. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, the history of anything that's in any way humanoid is always fascinating. We've um, one of the, the, the episodes I'm most proud of from my back catalogue is the one on the history of puppets. Mm. I'd go and have a look at that. It's absolutely brilliant. Really, really interesting. Puppets and um, all revolution and um, all sorts of uh, using using puppets to, to counteract the Nazi invasion, doing so in the mountains of Italy, I seem to remember. Uh, really, really wonderful stuff. So yeah, any, anything anything that does involve giant or tiny humans, uh, either, yes, uh, enlarged or shrunken, is always fascinating why it was done and how it was represented. The age of them, James, you mentioned the Vikings. Uh, I, can, I One of the places I often start when I'm doing a history of an unexpected episode, and I don't know where to begin, is the Victoria and Albert Museum. And they have a, a, a seriously old doll of... Uh, 1300 BC. Goodness me. So, I mean, really, it's, uh, you know, two millennia before the Vikings. Uh, just, I'll just describe it here, because but this is for the catalogue. Humanoid figure, painted wood, shaped like a paddle at the bottom. Um, these are called paddle dolls. This is one of several. There is very little of its head left, merely a small rectangular block. Likewise, the hair, threads, strands and arms are missing. The rest of the body is sound, although the paintwork is faded and stained in parts. 
The body is shaped like a paddle. From the base upwards, about 3.25 centimetres, are painted small black dots. From there upwards to about 6.75 centimetres from the base are alternate black, white and red squares in a chequered pattern. The rest of the torso is painted with vertical bands of black and red herringbone patterns. The collar fans out radially with red painted lines. So it's really quite elaborate, this. On the back is further use of the black and red herringbone pattern to indicate diagonal straps from shoulders to waistband. From the waistband are two long panels that cross diagonally to each other. Another horizontal band, six centimetres from the base. The band has two diagonal panels with red and black lines painted down them. The base is decorated with three horizontal bands of black, red and black herringbone pattern. So the point... I want to get across here is they don't just have a doll from that long ago, but it was immensely well decorated. And also, I love the fact that very little of its heads left. And I think as an archaeologist, my previous career as an archaeologist, I loved the the discovery of humanoid figures, particularly the ones that are not immediately obviously human. And it gives you a real shock when you actually realise just what you're looking at. And it's an abstract interpretation of a human. And uh, that's why I really like these paddle dolls. They're, they're, they're actually, they've been thought to present um, members of a female troupe of singers dedicated to the entertainment of a particular goddess called Hathor, who is the goddess of the sky of women, fertility and love. So uh, if you are interested in, in this ancient history of dolls, do just check out the Victoria and Albert Museum stick in dolls or paddle dolls and you'll have um, these, these wonderful, wonderful objects will come up. Um, and interesting to think that people were buried with them, um, all sorts of questions as to why that might have been the case. And for you as well, James, you'd be interested in the, the link with, a, with um, a female troupe of singers. Ooh, very fascinating, Samuel Willis. As ever, as ever, I too um, delved the V&A archives uh, and came across some late 17th century dolls, Lord and Lady Clapham. Um, so they're thought to have been made between 1690 and 1700 and belong to the Cockerell family, who are descendants of the diarist Samuel Pepys. And these are just two, two beautiful uh, examples of, of dolls from this period that are that basically evoke the fashion, um, the fashion trends from the period. And this was what I, I wanted to start off by talking about. I've been reading the, the most excellent book, uh, called Fashioning the Early Modern, Dress, Textiles and Innovation in Europe, 1500 to 1800, which is edited by the brilliant Evelyn Welsh, a brilliant historian in her own right. But also, as a slight footnote, uh, she's also the mother of Florence Welsh, um, the she of Florence and the machine fame. Um, anyway, this this book has a wonderful introduction where it's a collection of essays, all sorts of interesting things for you to sort of dip into if you're interested in the history of textiles or the history of fashion. Um, there are great stuff in here, including a wonderful uh, opening chapter uh, by the brilliant John Stiles uh, called Fashion and Innovation in Early Modern Europe. But the very expansive introduction sort of opens up the whole sort of theme of fashion and one of the things that it in the in the 18th century 17th and 18th century and one of the things that it's that it that it's it's getting across it tackles the idea of how do, how does fashion uh how do fashion and styles move around how do you know about fashion 
And one of the things that one of the way one of the mechanisms that she talks about here is the use of mannequins to and the development of mannequins in the early 18th century that come across from from France and and then the trend spreads and she outlines um a sort of spoof of it or a satire of the use of mannequins in the spectator uh publication um and they basically mimic um or sort of tease uh this sort of um french trend uh and it's attack on women's vanity the desire of 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 the english for french goods um, and it centres on on a sort of piece which describes the arrival of a jointed baby uh, with latest Paris fashions in January 1712. And this is at the height of the war with France over the Spanish succession. And I quote, I presume I need not inform the polite part of my readers that before our correspondence with France was unhappily interrupted by the war, our ladies had all their fashions from thence which the milliners took great care to furnish them with by means of a jointed baby that came regularly over once a month, habited after the manner of the most eminent toasts in Paris. And then it sort of, the spoof sort of continues with Mr. Spectator himself um, basically commenting on with displeasure on the placement of a patch on the breast, refusing to look under her skirt. Um, but it, it's a sort of... But what the shopkeeper explains to him is actually the doll is an automaton uh, that would then be used to demonstrate all the postures of the French court. Um, and while this is, you know, entirely fictional and, and a sort of humorous, satirical account, there is already, even in the early 16th century, the, a practice of using mannequins in this way to display fashions so if we have a look at the letter that Isabel d'Este uh, wrote to her that um that Isabella d'Este's son so Jamie just go back um this practice though was already widely in use by the early 16th century and the son of Isabella d'Este uh, wrote to her um and I'll quote from this letter my illustrious and exalted lady, I write to my mother all the time like that, my most reverent mother and lady Monsignor <laughs> de Moretta has told me that the king wishes my lady to send him a doll dressed in the fashions that sh suit you of shirts, sleeves, undergarments, outer garments, dresses, headdresses and hairstyles that you wear, sending various headdresses styles that would better satisfy his majesty for he intends to have some of these garments made to give to the women in France. Therefore, would you be so kind to send this as soon as possible? And this brings us into sort of, you know, to actually thinking about the Lord and Lady Clapham figures of the late 17th century that I've already talked about in the, in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And these are exact sort of ideas exact replicas of the kinds of things that would have been used at the time in order to display the kinds of fashions that people would have had. These aren't the kinds of body-sized mannequins that one sees in shops nowadays, but they are certainly, you know, smaller versions that would be sort of, that would be easy to sort of send around. And there are other, other examples um, for, for of these kinds of this kind of use to sort of demonstrate the latest fabrics, the latest fashions. Um, in 
1716, the Danish shopkeeper, Madame Louise Rosset, uh, had a monopoly, and I'm reading here from the, the chapter, exhibiting the fashion dolls that were delivered monthly from Paris to her shop in Copenhagen. And another example uh, from the playwright Carlo Goldoni describes how at the start of every season one may see at Venice in the Strada de Messeria a clothed figure which they call the Piavola of France. This is the prototype on which the ladies must model themselves and any extravagance whatsoever is considered beautiful provided it is found on this original. Venetian women are no less fond of variety than the ladies of France. The tailors, tailoresses and dealers in fashion profit thereby. And if France does not supply a sufficiency of fashions, the artisans of Venice have the cunning to make some alterations. So there we are, Sam, some brilliant examples of mannequins being used to convey... Um, fashion ideas and I'll end with one 18th century advertisement which described Mrs Hannah Teat's dressmaker at the top of Summer Street Boston is to be seen a mannequin in the latest fashion with the articles of dress night dresses and everything appertaining to women's attire it has been brought from London by Captain White ladies who choose to see it may come and send for it it is always ready to serve you if you come, it will cost you two shillings, but if you send for it, seven shillings. So there again, there's the idea that actually in a, a dressmaker is able to use that to purvey their wares. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm going to add to um, your wonderful phrase, plasticized swagger, the phrase jointed baby, mm. <laughs> which you used in that, <laughs> which I've also never heard before. A jointed baby. Well, I like that a lot. <laughs> um, I just want to talk a little bit about um, voodoo dolls. Uh, not Ooh, much to add here. Brilliant. Just, uh, the, the one thing you've got to um, to bear in mind is that there's very little... Well, I mean, let's just so what we're talking about here is is a kind of a cursed doll. So using a, a little uh, humanoid figure, stabbing pins or whatever, and put curses on it, and then you hope that it'll it'll affect the real human that you're using your doll to to convey. 
it's a bit of a kind of a Hollywood, you know, fictional exaggerated version. There's very little proof or um, any kind of interest uh, at all that that uh, it actually has much to do with the voodoo religion practice and culture. So although there may not be, um, you know, much evidence of it actually having having a great significant position in the voodoo of Haiti or New Orleans, there is certainly historical evidence of these kind of cursed dolls being used um, throughout history, actually. Um, one of the in most interesting early depictions or descriptions of this comes from Plato in his uh, Book of Laws. This is his book 11 of Laws. So he's writing around you know, 400 BC, as you bear that in mind, as a kind of... As a, as a as a a placeholder figure for for the period that we now have expressly mentioned is that in which injury is done to bodies by bodies according to nature's laws distinct from this is the type which by means of sorceries and incantations and spells as they are called not only convinces those who attempt to cause injury that they really can do so but convinces also their victims that they certainly are being injured by those who possess the power of bewitchment in respect of all such matters, it is neither easy to perceive what is the real truth, nor, if one does perceive it, is it easy to convince others. And it is futile to approach the souls of men who view one another with dark suspicion, if they happen to see images of moulded wax at doorways, or at points where three ways meet, or it may be at the tomb of some ancestor, to bid them make light of all such portents, when we ourselves hold no clear opinion concerning them. So that's Plato rather wonderfully uh, relishing in the mysteries of life. Uh, it's one of the great things that Plato does. Now, I mean, that was very old, as I said, 400 or so BC. But this this kind of idea of using dolls in this way does continue into early Christianity. Um, and so this is the fifth century, so maybe a millennia afterwards. You've got um, Sophronius in his account of the miracles of St. Cyrus and St. John describes a situation in which um, well, someone's made better. It's a medical recovery, you could probably describe it as, uh, by the discovery of a doll. And he tells a story of Theophilus of Alexandria, and he is being rendered um, paraplegic, and he has uncontrollable pain in his limbs and he believes this is all happening by enemies of his who are in league with the devil um, which here you bear it in mind we're talking about this being a christian practice the fact that he believes it to be done by people who are in league with the devil also suggests it being a non-christian practice um, which is very interesting that it appears in all sorts of different religions anyway in dreams uh, this chap is told to hire a fisherman and go out to sea the fishermen um, then do so they catch what they discover to be a box it's a box which is made of lead and inside the box is a doll of theophilus and not only that but in each limb is there a nail hammered through each limb and then when they remove each nail then the pain in his limbs then disappears um so I think it's really interesting actually because it's all to do with actually fear that this sort of magic actually works and that fear of non-Christian practices does go on to characterise Christians' view of the pagan world for a while to come. Um, and it, it's not just in this period it goes on. There's all sorts of evidence as well of people using um, kitchen witches, they're described as, or, or poppets, um, which is a, a similar 
similar tradition used in the British Isles. So it's a, you know, I think it's probably fair to say it's actually a Northern European practice. And the word poppet itself means child or doll in Middle English. Um, so, you know, a long, a long history there, James, both uh, Christian world and non-Christian and very ancient. So if you're thinking about voodoo dolls, whatever you do, don't get caught up on them being voodoo. No, but however, if you search on Amazon, uh, you can find several uh, examples of modern day voodoo dolls, sort of humorous gifts. Um, but I think it's still still going on. I'm just on Amazon as we speak. And there's one for a uh, boss. Uh, it, it says, uh, don't get cross, get even. There's a revenge voodoo doll and also one for an ex-lover. Uh, so it's it's amazing how these things sort of continue mm. into the present. What I wanted to talk about in my final little segment was a history of Barbie. Um, B- Barbie has been around for ages. Um, and even my own daughters were, despite the fact that I didn't necessarily approve of Barbies, uh, had Barbies. Uh, and sort of and it really managed to sort of really um, excite their imagination when they when they were young without any of the sort of evil uh, ideological connotations. So I'd like to talk then about the Barbie. Barbie was founded as a doll uh, in 1959 in March. Uh, and in its first year, some 300,000 of these uh, dolls were were sold. Uh, and they were produced by the Mattel uh, Toy Company, which was founded by Ruth Handler and her husband uh, just after the Second World War in 1945. And then they introduce this doll um, based on the German uh, the German doll, uh, Bild Lily. Uh, and one of the extraordinary things is how much it takes off. I mean, it's estimated that in 2020, Mattel sold, get this Sam, $1.35 billion worth of Barbie dolls and accessories, which was the most extraordinary growth that they'd had. I mean, I I imagine this is because of lockdown and parents wanting to buy uh, dolls uh, for their children to keep them entertained. Um, This had grown from uh, $950 million uh, in in. 2017. I think what's interesting about the Barbie doll is thinking about it in historical terms, thinking about its impact um, on on young children who have it. One of the things that's quite difficult to recover um, is how a child responds to a doll. And I think across history, how does we often see it from the perspective of the doll being produced the ideology that's behind the doll but actually there's sort of the the impact that a doll has on on an individual child i was struck recently by the arrival of afghan refugee children into the united kingdom i think i talked about this the other week and i was very struck by this young girl who couldn't speak english uh, is greeted by one of the volunteers and is handed a doll and is just so surprised that she's been given something and just hugs it to herself you know and and you you know how as a historian do you recover that experience of a, that emotional experience and that bond with a doll i think if we're thinking sort of more generally than that though you think about the impact of the barbie doll and you know, is it something that is that is positive? That what it does is it it 
it has an impact on social values it it conveys characteristics of in female independence so actually it's quite good it's quite aspirational you know in the sense that what you have is a you know uh, a sort of a relatively wealthy leisured lifestyle with you know with friends i mean and it, it's it's really part of that kind of you know american consumerist capitalist sort of ideal that has been sort of developed not only through the doll but the accessories um and the paraphernalia that go around it the sort of media franchise so there there are now films television series games there's music uh, my own daughters were obsessed with with barbie movies when they were when they were young younger sort of you know because all of their friends were into it and i suppose what to what extent does it have this what what impact has it had on children's imagination and particularly young girls imagination you know from from its early days to to now and i think one of the things that is interesting is actually looking at how Barbie has evolved, and I'm going to talk about that in a in a little bit. But what you see now is that there has been a response to the criticisms of, you know, Barbie being this, um, you know, a particular kind of body shape, an unrealistic body image for for young girls. Um, that it, you know, the the size of the doll is is tiny. Um, you know, tiny waist, sort of, you know, sort of petite figure um, that this sort of in- encourages sort of anorexia and eating disorders and all of the, all of those kinds of things. And actually, uh, Mattel has responded to a lot of this. Um, the size of Barbie's waist has grown. Um, so it's much more, you know, realistic in size. And also the range of Barbies that you have has changed over time and has become much more inclusive and representative of ethnicity of different um different sort of pursuits so we have the the astronaut the surgeon the olympic athlete the the skier the aerobics instructor the rock star the vet the the army officer the air force pilot the diplomat the rap musician even the um the presidential candidate scuba diver firefighter dentist all of these you know over 150 or so you know different kinds of barbies now of course you know this is to this is to sort of widen the market and allow children to sort of purchase and want and consume but also it is a it's a way in which the the doll is responding to pressure to become you know more um representative i suppose what that is it's a it's a sort of marketing embrace and sort of response to that um but i think i think if we have a look at the at the sort of um at the history of barbie herself the original barbie was in 1959 as i said that's her official birthday and it is barbie with with red hair earrings lipstick on powdered cheeks and in a in in what seems like a sort of striped uh swimsuit and it's mimicking the sort of glamour of hollywood's hollywood sort of actresses at the time people like marilyn monroe um we then sort of go through a really interesting sort of you know um range of different barbies uh, and apparently there are I was wrong earlier on. There were not just 150. Uh, my notes here are telling me that Barbie has had over 200 careers. She even uh, went to the moon in 1965 uh, <laughs> before Neil Armstrong did. 
Uh, so she's she's done all sorts of things. We then have the introduction in the 1960s. Uh, in 1961, Barbie gets a boyfriend, Ken, Ken Carson. Um, and Ken sort of suddenly we have the, you know, that you're able to to sort of uh, pair her up uh, with a with a with a sort of with a mate um, with a boyfriend. Um, and then there is very there there is early feminist reaction to her and, you know, that she is basically a sex sex symbol. Uh, and then in 1963, they introduce a sort of slightly dowdier best friend, Midge. Um, who sort of who you know who's adds added to the family, and then she has a, a sister, uh, Skipper Roberts, um, who who sort of comes in. There's then um, there are then celebrity Barbies, uh, Twiggy uh, in 1967, the supermodel Twiggy um, joins the the family, and there are others who other sort of superstar Barbies share. Uh, Aubrey Hepburn. Uh, would you remember, would you think J.K. Rowling as well uh, is is it? And then in the in the um, in the the uh, we then have the introduction of a an African American and Latina Barbie. So you know, racially, Barbie is is diversifying. Um, the African American doll is introduced in 1968. The Latina uh, Barbie in in 1980. And also we have a proliferation of different international Barbies. Um, now, again, one could say that this is actually catering to a global market, which it presumably is. But also it is diversifying the range of the dolls. And then we go through. We've got an Andy Warhol painting Barbie. We've got, um, you know, Barbie for president looks very suspiciously like a sort of I'm not it's it's slightly before um Hillary Clinton way before Hillary Clinton but a uh, Barbie running for president in 1992 um uh there's Barbie on the on the runway there's even drag queen Barbie uh after that there is also Ella who is a chemo Barbie so Barbie is sort of you know is um you know representing um you know, uh, victims with with can patients with cancer that's introduced in in 2014. Um, so there's this idea that that um, you know Barbie is diversifying. There's a new look. Barbie even goes historic. Um, so there's a range of sort of um, inspiring women uh, Barbies, uh, and this is a whole new collection that's brought out in 2018. Uh, Amelia Earhart, Frida Kahlo, uh, Catherine Johnson. Um, so really, Barbie is, um, you know, is very much, um, you know, part of history, Sam, uh, not only representing uh, Barbie. So there we are, uh, a potted history of Barbie. Good, bad, lover, hater. We have a whole a box full of them uh, at home, uh, unloved, unplayed with. Uh, but no doubt they have left an enormous mark uh, on my daughters. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. It's, it's a fascinating history. And you can go on and you can explore dolls' houses as well, which is a, a completely separate and fascinating subject. And if you're interested in that, do just Google the um, Queen Mary's Dolls' House, so early 20th century, um, which is a truly extraordinary um, relic. It was, a, it was a super fancy dolls' house, which was made for the Queen and has contributions from over 1,500 of the finest craftsmen and authors and poets and manufacturers of the early 20th century. It really is an extraordinary thing, so do have a look at that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that episode on the history of dolls. We've got all sorts of wonderful stuff coming to you next week. 
on the, and soon anyway coming up the history of cousins is on its way and I think we might do the history of leaves James so inspired was I by your idea for doing something on that in the last episode um, do please follow me on Twitter I'm at Dr Sam Willis and if you're interested in the history of the sea please check out my other podcast the Mariner's Mirror podcast and you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have a lovely website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to be a patron, head over to Patreon, uh, where you can support what we are doing with as l- anything that you could afford. Yep, anything you could afford would be hugely appreciated. It'll help us change the way we get people to think about the past. That is our ultimate goal. Thanks very much for listening. As always, guys, cheerio. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.